and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I am your student co-host, S.J. Morrison. Today, I will be speaking to Professor Rebecca Flanagan, Assistant Professor and Director of Teaching and Learning Methods at the University of Massachusetts School of Law on her article, The Kids Aren't All Right, Rethinking the Law Student Skills Deficit, which was published in the Brigham Young University Education and Law Journal. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, SJ. So let's jump right in. In your paper, you broke down the concept of critical thinking into two forms. A, critical thinking with a cognitive component, and B, a disposition to think critically. Can you please explain what these two forms of critical thinking mean? Sure. Uh, So critical thinking with a cognitive component is defined as a systematic evaluation of what you heard and you read. So evaluation is the most advanced step on Bloom's taxonomy of learning. Uh, The disposition to think critically is more like reasoning. It's an inclination to ask challenging questions and follow the reasoning and evidence wherever it leads. Uh, So really reasoning or the disposition to think critically comes before evaluation. You have to reason in order to evaluate something. You have to look at it critically, know what its parts are, know what questions to ask before you can evaluate it and make a value judgment about whatever it is you're reading or looking at. Okay. And in your paper, you cited to a number of studies that showed that students during undergrad are showing a decline in critical thinking skills development during their time in undergrad, and that this trend has been continuing since the 1980s. Why do you think that is? I think colleges have changed their focus, and there's a lot of reasons why they've changed their focus. The first being the lack of funding, especially with state colleges. They no longer can rely on state funding from state legislatures, so they have to look for funding elsewhere, which comes from full tuition paying students, usually out of state students and international students. Uh, They also want those students in particular, those who are helping their bottom line, to be satisfied. Uh, Not necessarily happy, but satisfied customers. And that's a huge change because learning is hard. Learning doesn't feel good. There's a lot of studies on this. Learning is meant to stretch you. And that stretching is not a comfortable feeling. But if you want people to be satisfied, they're not necessarily going to want to learn, want to be uncomfortable. So colleges have said, okay, we're going to create a pathway for these students who we need financially, but who don't want to be made uncomfortable. They want to be satisfied. They want to have a good experience, but they don't necessarily want to be challenged or want to learn. And I think that that has been a critical breakdown in education in general, but a critical breakdown in state colleges in particular. And how does this trend and reduction of critical thinking skills affect affect the students that do enter law school? So law school assumes students come in with strong thinking skills, particularly the type of strong critical thinking skills that are developed from a traditional liberal arts education, the type of education that was common in the 1960s through the 1970s, although that's when it started to get weaker. So the starting point for law school is a general baseline of general 
inductive and deductive reasoning skills so that the first year of law school can be about honing in on advanced legal analysis and reasoning, which is building on those inductive and deductive reasoning skills. So students who don't have these skills, these basic reasoning, analytical thinking skills are left behind at the very beginning and they stay behind because they're catching up on these basic skills while they need to be working on the advanced skills that law schools meaning to teach them the very basic skills that are necessary to practice. So students don't ever really get a chance to fully appreciate law school. So you mentioned that the majority of majors in the 1960s were liberal arts majors. Um, And in your paper, you drew a distinction between liberal arts majors and pre-occupational majors. Can you compare these for me and explain how one or the other may help to foster critical thinking skills? Okay, so this is a particular question I'm very passionate about. So I think that the book Paying for the Party, which came out after my article, does an excellent job at talking about where preoccupational majors come from. So they describe three pathways through college, and these pathways started in the 80s and accelerated in the 90s, and now they are full full steam. The first pathway is the party pathway. The party pathway includes a lot of the pre-occupational majors. They are meant for students who will pay full price for college. They will pay full tuition. They come from upper middle class families where they're probably going to get a job through family connections or through social connections that they have through their fraternities or sororities or their sports teams, especially the sort of intramural sports teams that are not division one or division three at smaller liberal arts schools. These students know that they need the college credential in order to move through life. It's now our baseline. You have to have a BA or a BS. But these students don't necessarily want to work really hard in college, but they need a major. So these majors like marketing, uh, athletic training, sports management were developed to appeal to these students who want the party pathway. They want to go to colleges where they can enjoy the football games all weekend long and not study. They want to enjoy the fraternity and the sorority life. They want to enjoy college, but not necessarily learn a whole lot. And honestly, for these students who are going to get jobs as things like a party planner, they really don't need the advanced critical thinking skills and the social benefits they get from college are actually really helpful for them. So this party pathway developed for these students who don't need the critical thinking skills, who don't need the really advanced education that college was meant to provide. The problem is that students who don't have that sort of party planning job in front of them don't know that the party pathway is cheating them. The party pathway is not giving them the skills that they need. So there is a second, there's a second pathway called the mobility pathway. These are the pre-vocational majors. These have been in college for a long time. These are the nursing degrees, the engineering degrees. These students don't tend to go to law school, but these majors have remained very rigorous in colleges across the board. They were rigorous in the 60s. They're still rigorous today. But lastly, there's the professional pathway. That should be the pathway to law school. But the the professional pathway is the traditional liberal arts curriculum with a lot of hidden barriers that students who don't have family connections don't know how to navigate. They don't know how to get around them. So the professional pathway 
has barriers like the LSAT and the MCAT. They have required summer internships that a student who doesn't have parents or family of means can't take because these summer internships aren't paid. The students who don't have families of means have to work during their summer and usually have to work during their uh, college edu- their college career. They also require heavy math, science, language prerequisites that many of these students would not have gotten in their high school, so they'd have to remediate them during college. These A lot of students who don't come from families of means can't afford that. They just can't afford the extra credits that aren't going to go towards their BA or their BS. So students on the professional pathway make absolutely fantastic law students. Uh, they usually come from the upper middle class because upper middle class families know about these hidden barriers, they know about these invisible barriers, and they know how to help their children navigate them. They are unbelievably difficult for students who don't have the parents or the familial background to help them navigate all of these hidden barriers. So those students who really want to be lawyers but don't have this support wind up on the party pathway, which is not going to give them the skills that they need to succeed in law school or any sort of professional career, but it's the pathway with the least barriers. So we've created these three pathways, and in a lot of ways, these three pathways work, but we don't have the sort of support for students who don't have familial support to help them know which pathway is best for them. That disjunction between what is happening in college, what is happening in advising, and what is happening at law schools is one of the problems that created academically adrift and has created the problems that law schools are seeing. Beautifully stated, Professor. Thank you. Uh, Let's uh, let's talk about the decline in student study time since 1961, because I'll tell you, when I read this, I was shocked. Uh, you stated that studies show that the average undergrad in 1961 studied approximately 25 hours a week outside of class. But come 2013, this number dropped to about 13 hours a week of outside class study. So from this, can we simply draw the conclusion that students today are lazier? So I actually would fight against the idea that students are lazier because I actually think that college students today are being cheated. Students don't know what they should be doing and the colleges are setting such low standards. They're meeting those low standards and thinking that that's just fine. College students pay way too much tuition and put way too much time into the four years you have to take to graduate from college to be cheated out of the skills that they really, really need. So I think this failure to set high expectations is absolutely the college's failures, the university failures. It is not the students being lazy. The students just don't know. And I think it's ridiculous for college or pundits to think that any 18-year-old is going to know what they should be doing or if the bar is too low for them. No, I just, I I look back at myself at 18 and I certainly didn't have any clue of what I was doing or what I wanted to do. And I think it's it's true for all of us. It was definitely true of me at 18. And this is a really imperfect metaphor that I can probably get criticized for, but colleges really have a role that's similar to parenting. So when you're a parent, you have to make choices that are going to make your child unhappy, but are good for them. You have to bring your child to the doctor to get shots. They don't like the shots, but they really don't like chicken pox if they don't get the shocks. They really wouldn't like the measles if they didn't get vaccinated. 
colleges have a similar role. Students don't know what they need long-term in life. So they have to tell them that there are things that they need to accomplish that are going to make them unhappy, unsatisfied, but colleges have neglected to do that. They've basically stepped away and said, "We're it's more important for us for you to be satisfied than it is for you to do the things that you need to do. And I think it's really tragic. And I feel terrible for students because they're missing out on so much. So in law school then, let's talk about academic support programs. Can you tell me about the dawn of these programs and why today they still may not be fulfilling the needs of today's law students. Yeah, so I, I will start with a disclaimer, which is I've worked in academic support for almost 15 years now, so it's very, very close to my heart. And I love academic support and I love what we can do for students. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, they were actually called minority affair, uh, minority affair programs. But with Backey and a nub, number of other Supreme Court decisions and state laws, they had to shift away from being called minority affairs and they chose academic support. Uh, academic support still does an absolutely marvelous job with their traditional constituents, which is a very small group. Uh, students who will make wonderful lawyers, but they have markers that put them at risk. Either students who come from uh, low SES background, students of color who don't have families who are highly educated, students who have worked really hard or incredibly passionate who show that they have potential, but they just haven't been given help to navigate all of those invisible barriers. And I think ASP still does an amazing job with those students. We're able to know who they are at the very beginning. We're able to provide them with supplemental instruction, but that should be about 10 to 15% of an entering class at any law school, given the size of most ASP programs. So I'm not saying that we should only have 10 to 15% of students who are students of color and students who come from low SES backgrounds or students that need help, but that is usually what law schools admit. And ASPs are built for 10 to 15% of the students. It's usually one or two people at an average law school or one person doing ASP part-time. And they're meant to only work with that group of students. Unfortunately, when you are bringing in 50 and 60% of your class that needs help, this one or two people is just not enough. They cannot provide all of the support for the number of students that they're seeing. So everybody gets shortchanged. And ASP as a community has been speaking out at AALS, uh, which is the American Association of Law Schools. They've been speaking out as much as they can saying, please, we want to do more for more students. We want help, but you have to provide the resources. You have to provide more manpower. You have to provide more training. And law schools have in many places, not all places, responded that, hey, we're in an admissions crisis. We can't fill the seats. We can't possibly give you more. And that's a real problem that we're seeing more students in ASP and law schools. And I completely agree that law schools do are in a, still in a financial challenge, but those financial challenges are making it additionally difficult for ASP. In section three of your article, it begins with the statement, law student underpreparedness is not a problem with a singular solution. It is a wicked problem. What do you mean by wicked problem? So a wicked problem is, there's actually a, a formal term for wicked problems. They are problems that have contradictory or changing 
uh, solutions that are embedded in a system where everything is interdependent. In law schools, there are multiple sources of law student underpreparedness, and the contradictory changing nature of the solutions are that some of the underpreparedness problem will negatively affect law schools in other ways. An example of this would be if you put pressure on colleges to be more rigorous and to tell students they need to take harder classes in order to succeed in law school, you're also going to find colleges recommending fewer students apply to law school. They're going to say, okay, if you need to take these rigorous classes, then you, if you're not doing well in them, you shouldn't go to law school, which is going to contribute to the financial problems that law schools are having. Um, so adding more ASP may result in colleges further weakening their analytical requirements. So if we did provide all of the support and funding for ASP that I wish was provided, that may in fact give colleges more impetus to say, oh, we don't need to provide more inductive and deductive reasoning skills to our students. We don't need more classes that focus on close reading and writing because, you know, law schools do that, which would make the problem even worse for law schools. So it's a wicked problem because most of the solutions would actually create more problems or complicate the problem and make it more entrenched. So it's really difficult to say that there's one way we can solve this. There's really not. We need to look at the entire system and look at how the entire system has broken down. Uh, wow. I, I only have one question left for you. Um, you closed your article with a, a number of questions that law schools should be posing about how they approach their curriculum and how to address the new issue of the underprepared student. What is your hope for the future of legal pedagogy? So my hope is that law schools recognize that there is a problem and work with undergraduate universities, beginning with providing better advising and assistance to students. So instead of saying to a student who's struggling with the invisible barriers of a professional pathway program of a liberal arts major, instead of just saying, oh, take a party pathway major, be sports management, actually having more advisors who can say, okay, what are your long-term career goals, anonymous college student? What do you want to do? How can we help you? Where are you struggling? What can we do? Making the process more transparent for students. I think colleges and law schools need to be engaged in a dialogue with each other so that colleges produce better law students and law schools can do a better job educating students. I also think that uh, law schools really need to look at what medical schools have done. And I wrote an article on this and I got a lot of pushback and it's really controversial, but I'm standing by this. Uh, medical schools realized you simply have to have a baseline level of knowledge in order to succeed in medical school. And the stakes are so high in medical school that they didn't bend. They simply said, this is the way it has to be. These are the skills that people need to have. And we need to make sure that this happens. So medical schools have institutionalized guidance for students who want to be doctors. And they established clearly articulated benchmarks for those students those benchmarks are on websites that are easily navigatable so that students can find it, even if they don't have a great advisor at their college. And 
this both democratizes the process and it broadens the pipeline to med school so that they've taken away some of the hidden barriers. And I'm in no way saying that there aren't hidden barriers to medical school. There certainly are. But there are fewer hidden barriers than there are in the pathway to succeeding in getting to law school. I I have to read that article now because I find that so interesting. You can really make an analogy here, and I hope that this doesn't offend anyone, but the liability for doctors and the liability for lawyers can be comparable in a way. And I say that because they are tasked with helping people and people's lives in both um, professions can be on the line. And the LSAT, pretty much any undergrad can take the LSAT and be admitted to law school. Whereas, as you were saying before, you have to have something of a pre-med curriculum or a biology curriculum. Am am I understanding you correctly? Yes. So there are some people who are working towards this, uh, notably Judith Wegner, who's the Dean Emeritus of UNC Law School, and Joan Harworth, who's also a Dean Emeritus, I believe, of Michigan State. They're working with the Law School Admissions Council to change the LSAT so we can move more towards this. But there is considerable pushback, in part from law schools, because if you add more prerequisites, then you're going to have fewer students applying. And with the number of law schools that have closed or have been in crisis with the declining applications to law school, they're afraid. They're afraid if we add any more barriers to to getting into law school, we're going to attract fewer students. I think that's very short-sighted. I don't think that adding adding more requirements decreased the number of people applying to medical school. I think it produced better doctors, more prepared doctors, people trust doctors more. I think that we could possibly change the culture where lawyers are looked at negatively if we had better prepared lawyers who had better communication skills, who are better with their clients because they had a better formative background in college. So I think that there are long-term benefits, but there's a lot of short-term fear towards moving towards a program that would help more students be better lawyers. And I think that there's also a misconception amongst a lot of non-lawyers about the stakes of lawyering. They, most people have gone to a doctor and they know the stakes that if your doctor doesn't diagnose you, you could die. What they don't understand is that if you have a bad lawyer, uh, not only can you die, you could lose your children, you could lose your livelihood, you could lose your life savings. The stakes are still really high for poor for people who have poor lawyers, but I don't think most people understand that those stakes are there and that they're there for everyone. You don't know what bad thing could happen to you where you might need a lawyer. Therefore, we need more lawyers who are better trained and we need to look at them more like we look at medical doctors. That is fascinating. And I would like to endorse all of those statements. Um, That's fantastic. Uh, Professor, again, thank you so much for coming and being on Ipsa Dixit. Uh, It was so cool to get to talk to you about this article. Oh, thank you, SJ. Sunny Taipei Skin 
the color of a walnut shell and a baseball cap holding down her black hair and she came here after midnight the hot weather made her feel right at home come on in we haven't slept for weeks drink some of this it'll put Cali, no worse for wear, money to burn, time to kill, but five minutes looking in his eyes, and we all knew he was broken pretty bad, so we gave him what we had, we cleared a space for him to sleep in, and we let the silence, that's our trademark, make its presence felt, come on in. We haven't slept for weeks, drink some of this, it'll put color in your cheeks. They came in by the dozens, walking or crawling, some were bright-eyed, some were dead on their feet, and they came from Zimbabwe. Soviet Georgia, East St. Louis, or from Paris, or they lived across the street. But they came, and when they'd finally made it here, it was the least that we could do to make our welcome clear. Come on in. We haven't slept for weeks. Drink some of this. This'll put color in your